And the first section that we get to in the Sermon on the Mount is what we call the Beatitudes. It's nine blessings that the Lord teaches his uh, followers. And um, the Sermon on the Mount that we're studying is found in Matthew chapter five, six, and seven. The other gospel accounts, they record them, but they're kind of sporadic and spread out. And Matthew does such a um, fine job of just organizing these beautifully so that we can uh, read them all together and meditate on them. And just easy to uh, apply to our life as we see it organized like that. And so we're, we're studying Matthew's account and, and uh, the Sermon on the Mount won't take you but about 15 minutes to read it. If you haven't read it yet, I'd encourage you read it. I would encourage you to read it every week. Just kind of follow along with us as we are uh, going through the Sermon on the Mount. And we're walking a little slow. And that's okay because every single week as we uh, dive into these verses, uh, the Lord's speaking to us and he's changing us and we don't wanna rush through anything. And so we're taking our time as we go through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And we discovered in week one that the purpose for Jesus giving this sermon is that he is starting to teach his people that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is here. And we saw in Matthew 4, as we set up this series that, that, that Jesus went throughout the town proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is in your midst. And then he began to heal everybody, all the sick, all the demonized, all those who were suffering. He healed them and that's where the crowds formed. And so as you begin to read Matthew 5 and you see the crowds forming and you might think, well, who are the crowds? They weren't just average Joes. These were people that actually got touched and healed by God or saw him healing them and they began to follow him. And so he goes up on this high hill, this mountain that the Bible says, he sits down and he begins to teach. And now just like we've been doing the last several weeks, we're gonna read all of those blessings at once and then we're gonna zoom in on some of them today. And so we love to stand for the reading of the word. And so I'm gonna ask you one more time to stand. And then I promise you, you won't have to stand again for about 30 minutes unless you start shouting me down. And uh, so Matthew chapter five, um, verse one, if you're ready to read, say, let's go. So seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who, per, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, we just ask, Lord, that you'd speak to us. Speak, Holy Spirit, for your servant is listening. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Today, as we uh, read these yet again, we looked last week at, at mourning and meekness and righteousness, and today we're just gonna look at one of them, and that is mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy. And so if you thought we were slowly walking through this, we're really going to slow down today. And we're just going to look at one, and that is uh, found in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now this beatitude, if you will, is so countercultural to the world that we live in today. Like it is not popular to show mercy. 
It is not popular to extend mercy to somebody, to be merciful. It's like, no, no, they wronged me and they need to get what's coming to them. Like they deserve punishment. They deserve for me to, to lash out, to retaliate. Uh, maybe for you growing up, you use the word mercy. I, I use the word, or well, I yelled mercy every time I got put in a headlock, right? You, you, know, that you're, you know, they say, say mercy, say mercy. Uh, or maybe you're a sports fan and, and you're, you understand the mercy rule. It's when you're so ahead of your opponent, you're just putting a whooping on them and they implemented this mercy rule where you gotta stop, right? Uh, you gotta stop whooping them. And so uh, maybe that's your definition of mercy, but I, I do want us to just define mercy. We'll first look at it from uh, Mr. Webster. And uh, Webster says that mercy is compassionate or kindly forbearance shown towards an offender, an enemy, or other person in one's power. So it's compassionate, compassionate or kindly forbearance. That word right there, forbearance, means to hold something back. Like if you uh, are, are being forbearing, you're, you're holding something back. And that is the foundation of mercy, is that when we're gonna show mercy, we're being kind and compassionate by holding something back. And so uh, I like to define it this way. Mercy is not giving someone something that they actually deserve. That's the definition of mercy. It's not giving someone something that they actually deserve. And so when they wrong me, when they hurt me, when they do something against me, if I'm to show mercy, it means I know they deserve it. I know they did me wrong but I choose to withhold my punishment. I choose to withhold lashing out. I choose to withhold judgment. I have the power, I have the right, I have the authority, but I choose not to. And now it's kind of like meekness. We talked about last week with meekness. Meekness sounds weak. And showing mercy sometimes, especially to us guys, can sound weak. Like I'm not, gonna, I'm not a doormat. I'm not gonna let them just roll over me and hurt me I've got to stand up for myself. I've got to fight against them. I've got, it's the same with meekness. Meekness is not weakness, nor is mercy weakness. It is strength under control. I have the power. I have the authority. I am right, but I choose not to exercise that authority and power and, and judge them and punish them. It is not my place. And so this sounds so strange to our ears, especially in this world today. In today's society, today's culture, it is not merciful. It's full of can canceling and full of judging and full of, you know, lashing out. And it's a dog eat dog kind of world. I'm gonna do whatever I can to, to get ahead of you. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Let me sit down and let me teach you about the kingdom of heaven. It's different than the kingdom of this world. He says, we've got to understand this, that if we want to walk in the kingdom of heaven, we want to walk in those kingdom blessings, you can't operate like the world. And so we see that we must be merciful. And so uh, mercy, as we read in Webster's dictionary, says compassion, kindness. And that is part of it. As we are merciful, we should have compassion and, and sympathy and empathy and, and, and our hearts should break. But that's not all. Mercy is not just compassion. Mercy is also action. And so mercy equals compassion plus action. If we wanna be merciful, then we must have compassion plus action because I can just have compassion. I can feel sorry. I can, I can be empathetic. I can you know, mourn over somebody and their actions. I can be so sorrowful, but if there's no action, then it's not mercy. On the flip side of it, 
I can act fervently. I can, I can post and pick it and I can pour out judgment and I can act in righteousness sake and I can stand up for the truth. But if I'm not compassionate and loving and caring, then that's not mercy. And so we don't, we don't like to show it. We don't, like to, we don't like to give mercy. But if we think about it, we want everybody to give us mercy. You know, I, I heard this said, it says, uh, we've become great judges of other people's sins and great lawyers of our own. We, we're quick to judge other people's wrongs, but we don't want that same judgment extended to us. We, we wanna point the finger instead of look in the mirror, right? And so Jesus is teaching, that's not how the kingdom of heaven operates. Somebody who has the characteristics of the kingdom of heaven, somebody who's been touched and marked by mercy. They've been touched by mercy. They extend mercy. I go as far as to say is that we are called to show mercy. That is a calling on our life in a world full of hate, in a world full of judgment. We are called to be merciful, to show mercy. That's good. And as God draws them in, listen to me, church, this is a place where God is gonna draw in people who are far from him and they're gonna be messed up. They're gonna be, they're gonna be hurt. They're gonna have baggage that accompanies them. Matter of fact, God will draw people in this place that have wronged you, that have hurt you, offended you. And we are called to be these agents of mercy that extend such mercy and such grace when they're used to judgment, condemnation, harassment, being canceled. We're gonna extend mercy to them, not judge them. That's why James 2 says it this way, he takes it up a notch. He says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. But Michael, you don't know what they did to me. Mercy triumphs over judgment, but they were wrong. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's hard, right? It's hard to do that. It's hard for us to extend mercy and be merciful. And so I want to talk for just a moment of what that looks like. How can we, as people being marked by mercy, as a church that is marked by mercy, how can we be merciful to those who do not deserve mercy? Well, I think the first thing, you see it in your notes, remind ourselves how merciful God is to us. If you have a problem extending mercy to somebody, just stop and think about how merciful God was to you and how merciful he is to us. I don't know about your life, but my life, I did a lot of wrong and I keep doing wrong. And I'm so deserving of punishment, so deserving of the wrath of God and the judgment of God, but he chose to withhold it from me. He chose to extend mercy, even though I was deserving of punishment. You know, I think of it this way. We've, we've wronged God and, and did wrong and, and we rack up this debt against God. Like we just acquired a debt. And, and we read in scripture that the payment of that debt is death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And, and so, but we see God being so rich in mercy that even though I was deserving of death, he extended mercy to me. What did he do? He held back, remember forbearance? He held back the punishment. You know, there's a clear picture of mercy in John chapter eight and write the reference down. It's not in your notes. I actually just thought about it this morning as I was looking over everything. John chapter eight, there's a uh, occasion right there in verse one one through 12 probably. 
And a very familiar passage, a lot of preachers like to preach it. Um, it's the woman caught in the act of adultery. And, and, and they're meeting in the temple, something like this. And, and Jesus is teaching. And the Pharisees, they bring in this woman who was caught in the act of adultery and they lay her before the midst of the people. And they say, Jesus, this woman was caught in the act. The law says we should stone her. What do you say? Maybe you're familiar with that. And Jesus gives a perfect picture of mercy because that woman was caught in the act. She was guilty, deserving of punishment. If you're familiar with the story, you know that Jesus knelt down. He didn't respond. He knelt down and began to write in the sand. And then one by one, they began to leave. And Jesus looks up at the woman and says, woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And, and she says, no, sir. And he says, well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's this perfect act of mercy because by, by Jewish law, those Pharisees had every right to stone her. They probably even had those stones already in their hands. They were ready to stone her. And Jesus in that moment taught them something so countercultural, so such against religion and the ways of that time. He says, I know that you've got a rock. I know you probably picked out the best rock. Like you know how to pick out some good rocks. Come on, we know how to judge people and hurt people. We know how to give them what's coming to them. But Jesus says, just because you're right, doesn't mean you need a rock. And that's just been going in my head this morning. Just because you're right, doesn't mean you need a rock. Just because they did what they, you said they did, just because they hurt you and offended you, stabbed you in the back, said something about you, just because they wronged you, you're right. But that doesn't mean you need a rock. And so Jesus doesn't throw rocks what does he do? He throws relief to her. He says, go and sin no more. He freed her from that. And it's the same mercy that Jesus pours out on us. If we would just remind ourselves of how merciful God has been to me, then it helps me in showing mercy to other people. Ephesians chapter two goes a little further with it. And it says in verse four, but God, but God rich in mercy, let me tell you today, he's rich in mercy. That God's mercy is bigger than your biggest mistake. He's rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even while we were dead, even while we were spiritually dead, far from him, he made us alive together in Christ. That's reconciliation. By grace, you have been saved. And so he's saying, in light of your sins, you deserve punishment. You deserve it, but God is rich in mercy. He says, rich in grace. He's gonna give you something you don't deserve, salvation. And he's gonna hold back something that you do deserve, punishment and death, that's mercy. He's holding it back. And so he, we see that he didn't have to do it, but he did it for us anyway. We didn't deserve salvation, but his love and his compassion for us, he chose to die in our place. And so we must remind ourselves daily, remind ourselves how God has been so merciful to us. Who am I not to extend mercy to others? Who am I to pour out judgment on somebody for wronging me? So I remind myself, I remind myself that he didn't have to, but he did it anyway. You see, I think that when you encounter the mercy of God, when you've been marked by mercy, 
It's then that you can extend mercy because you know what it's like. You've been in their shoes and you know what it's like to, to be judged and harassed. And then Jesus comes in and he extends such mercy and grace to you. And so if we've been marked by mercy, if we're followers of Christ, if Jesus has saved us from the darkness, reunited us with Christ, then he commands us, calls us to extend mercy to others. And as I was thinking about this, how do we initiate that mercy? What's the first step that I need to take in extending mercy to those who have wronged me and hurt me, those who have done things against me, those that have stabbed me in the back, those who have hurt me in my past, what is it? And I believe that there's a good starting point for most of us, and it's a powerful three-worded sentence, and it's this right here, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. For some of us in the room, it's so hard to even utter those words. Michael, if you only knew what they did. Michael, if you only knew the pain that they caused. If you only knew the, the years that were robbed from me. If you only knew, and you want me to say, I forgive you? As I was praying this morning in my office, I just saw this picture of somebody clinging to a rope. And the Lord said, there are those in this house who are holding on to unforgiveness and you're clinging for your life. And if you would just let go, it would save your life. He said the very rope that you're clinging to is taking your life. And can I tell you church, as you hang on to that unforgiveness, as you harbor bitterness and resentment, there's a popular quote, not sure who said it, but it said, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. It is killing you and it's causing you to be physically sick, physically sick because you're harboring bitterness and unforgiveness. You see, forgiveness is not giving them freedom to hurt you again. Forgiveness is giving you freedom to live again. And it's time for you to live again, to get your freedom back as you forgive. Today is the day that you extend forgiveness to those who have wronged you. Forgiveness. I'm not excusing what they've done. I'm not downplaying what they've done. I'm not saying that they were right or justified. You're probably right. And it probably hurts. And it probably cuts deep than I'll ever be able to know. Or it maybe even can't even relate to. And I might not know all the details and I might not know what happened to you, but I know someone who does. And God is not ignorant to our pain. His head does not turn away from those who have wronged us. He, while he's merciful, the Bible says he's just and righteous. And the Lord says, vengeance is mine. There will be a day where we have to stand before him and, and be held accountable for all of our actions. And so don't think that their actions will go unaddressed. The Lord will fight for you. But we are called to forgive, to be merciful. And as Jesus teaches this in the Beatitudes, the first part of this Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't stop there. In the Lord's Prayer, which we'll get to in a few weeks, he prays this line in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Do you understand what that's saying? It's saying forgive us with the same measuring stick that I'm forgiving those who have wronged me and sinned against me 
that we're saying that God forgive me in accordance with how I forgive other people. Do you want that? How, how would that forgiveness be going for you right now? It's the same principle. Jesus said, be merciful and you'll receive mercy. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Matter of fact, the disciples are so uh, dumbfounded by this and they're rolling it around their head that Jesus actually clarifies at the end of the prayer. There's no other principle in that prayer that he stops and unpacks, but that one right there. If you will read down in your Bibles to Matthew 6, 14, he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Wow. Serious. Write down Luke chapter six, verse 36. Verse 36 says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Do you see that principle taking place? That so much is hinging on how we extend mercy and forgiveness and judgment. And so it's almost like an if then kind of statement. If you do this, then this will happen. Why is God calling us to that? Calling us to such a higher standard because just as he is merciful, just as our father is merciful, we're imitators of Christ. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. That's why Ephesians tells us to imitate Christ and clothe ourselves with him, to put him on and walk in the spirit. We are to be Jesus to this world. And I've said it to you before and it rings true today that sometimes the only Jesus that people will see is you. The only Bible that they will read is you. And we are called to this higher standard. We're called to this, to forgive. I like to say it this way, the forgiven forgive. Just like we remind ourselves of how merciful God has been to us and it motivates me to extend mercy, the forgiven forgive. If I've been forgiven by God of so much, who am I to withhold forgiveness from somebody else? And so the forgiven, forgive. The forgiven, forgive. I love how 2 Corinthians, Paul puts it because he gives us a new perspective. Paul, as they were talking about people and interacting with people, gives us insights, a principle that we need to grasp. And it is this, is that we are to no longer view humans as humans. We're no longer to look at them in the flesh. Look at 2 Corinthians with me. In, in chapter five, Paul says, from now on, from this day forward, therefore regard no one according to the flesh, to the flesh, human nature, the sinful nature. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Why? Because he died and resurrected. He's alive. He's, a spir he's spiritual. He proved himself to be 100% God and 100% man. And it says the same as for us. Look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. The flesh has passed away and the spirit has come. We're people of the spirit. We walk in the spirit. And verse 18 tells us that all of this is from God, whom through Christ reconciled us. There's that word again, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God who was reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting their trespasses against them. Some of y'all need to under, underline that one. Not counting their trespasses against them and trusting us to the message of reconciliation. And so we're reconciled to God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. As he poured out mercy and, and chose to forgive, as he chose to forgive us of our sins and die in our place, we're now reconciled to him. We were spiritually dead, the scripture says, but now we're alive in Christ. We've been reconciled. And now he takes this reconciliation a step further. And he says, since you've been reconciled to God, now you've been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. You're a minister of reconciliation. You're to go and to tell people that, that Jesus died for them so they can be united with Christ. And that also you can be united with one another that the, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. That reconciliation is also not only vertical, it's horizontal. And that we can be reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. And so when we forgive, you see forgiveness produces reconciliation. When I'm merciful and holding back that which they deserve and I extend forgiveness to them, I'm not, I'm not, saying that they're right, I'm not down, I'm, I'm freeing myself. And then as I free myself, I then can be reconciled with my brother and sister in Christ. Why? Because I don't view them like the world. These are not my enemies. People are not my enemy. I don't view them that way. I have a new perspective. If you're a, a new creation in Christ, the old is gone and the new is here. And so we're reconciled together. And this is a perfect picture of mercy. Maybe you're wondering, what does it mean to, to reconcile? What does that look like? Well, if there's any accounting majors in the room or people good with finances, you're familiar with the word reconcile. Reconcile literally means to bring the balance to zero. To bring the balance to zero. Do you understand the depth of that? Because if, if God reconciled, if we're being reconciled to God, that means I had a balance. That means I acquired a debt. That means that I had a big bill to pay. And it was a bill so big that I couldn't pay it for myself. There was nothing I could do to earn God's love, to being deserving of my salvation. There was nothing I could do to right my wrongs. I had a bill that was too big to pay and Jesus paid my bill. The bill has been paid. Do you understand that Jesus paid your bill and we're to extend that same mercy and reconciliation and forgiveness to other people. There's people in your mind right now that have hurt you, that have wronged you, that have put, built up a bill against you. Some of those bills are like the Dollar General bills. They're about this long. And Jesus says, bring the balance to zero. Bring the balance to zero. Now you're not saying that sin is okay and they don't need to, they don't need to operate in truth and operate in light. No, 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 no. We're gonna, tell, we're gonna tell them, but mercy triumphs over judgment. We're not gonna pour out judgment and hit them over the head first and tell them that they were wrong and they deserved the wrath of God. We're gonna bring them into the presence of the Lord where they can experience freedom and salvation and deliverance. And Jesus is gonna be the one that sets them free from the bondage of sin. And so we extend that mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. A couple more points. The merciful choose reconciliation over retaliation every time. 
Let's just get that in our culture, in our DNA of who we are. We're marked by mercy. We're merciful people. So what does that mean? I'm gonna choose reconciliation over retaliation every single time. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What is, okay, I give mercy. They shall receive mercy. What is that talking about? I think as we remind ourselves how merciful God has been to us, that we also need to remind ourselves that we will stand before the Lord one day. That we need to remember that we all will stand before the Lord. That there will be a judgment day. There will be a settling of accounts. There will be a time where we stand and give an account for our actions. And that is the moment that we will be judged accordingly. And in my life, I would rather err on the side of mercy and God tell me, Michael, you messed up by erring on the side of mercy than saying I messed up by erring on the side of judgment. And so we wanna err on the side of mercy because we realize that we're all gonna stand before the Lord, that every knee is gonna bow, every tongue is gonna confess. And so we realize that we need to forgive other people. I want us to read a long passage and to kind of sum up what we've talked about. It's found in Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. The disciples still trying to comprehend this forgiveness principle, this extending mercy principle. It's been with them now for maybe a couple of days and we get to chapter 18 and Peter's got to speak up. He's got he's to get clarity because there's probably some people in Peter's past that have wronged him pretty hard. And he just can't, he ain't come to terms yet with forgiving some folks. And so he speaks up. He goes up in verse 21, goes to Jesus and he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now watch this. Peter answers his own question, tries to give a good Sunday school answer. He says as many as seven times, he thought he was being oppressive, Right? like a big, seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Seven, sometimes, some translations say seven times 77 or seven times 70, you know, 490 times. And then Jesus gives them this parable. A parable is a story to illustrate a spiritual principle. And he gives them this story and he says this, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Now that is when we stand before the Lord. He is the king and we are his servants. When, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now I don't know, I know you, you guys don't have talents in your pockets, but that is millions of millions of dollars. Some people even say billions of dollars. It's meant to show you that it's unpayable, that the debt that this servant had occurred was unpayable to his master. And so verse 25, since he could not pay it, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, that's the compassion part of mercy. The master of the servant released him and forgave the debt. That's the action part of mercy. Verse 28, but when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That's a few thousand dollars. This fails in comparison, right? And he seizes him and he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. 
And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Verse 30 says, he refused and he went and he put him in prison until he could pay the debt. That's opposite of mercy. That's pouring out judgment. He gave him what he deserved. And then verse 31 says, when his fellow servant saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. That shows us other people are watching. Verse 32, then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you have not had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? There's that principle. And in his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers. If you get that King James version, it says the torturers. That's a picture of hell. Until you should pay this debt, which we know can never be paid. So that's eternity. And so verse 35, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your hearts. Sobering. But I also want us to realize how he used fellow servants and brother. He's not talking about how Christians treat the world. He's talking about how Christians treat Christians. And while mercy and forgiveness is rare in the streets, it's rare in the culture and the society that we live today, can I just implore you that, that it's crept into the church? that the culture of the world has crept into the church. And one of the ways that it has is that we as a church harbor bitterness and unforgiveness. And we don't wanna be reconciled. We wanna be right. And let me remind you of John chapter eight, just because you're right doesn't mean you need a rock. That Christ died, that we might be reconciled to him and to one another. And so we remember we're gonna face God one day. Romans 14 warns us, says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So what's at risk if we don't, take on this character trait of extending mercy and do what God says. It says that same level of judgment, that same level of unforgiveness is gonna be extended to you. That that's the measuring stick of our forgiveness, of our mercy that God's gonna show us. And so as we hear the word, as we examine what Jesus is saying, we have two options. When people wrong us, hurt us, offend us, we either get mad, harbor bitterness, unforgiveness, jealousy, anger, resentment, or we show mercy. You see, we can't get mad and be divisive and get mad and gossip and get mad and harbor unforgiveness and expect God to extend mercy and forgiveness to us. Who am I? God's been so good to me. Who am I to not extend mercy to those who have wronged me? Max Licato wrote this book on the Beatitudes and here's a quote that I love. It says, unfaithfulness is wrong. So what they did to you is wrong, but revenge is worse. But the worst part of all of it is without forgiveness, bitterness is all that's left. 
bitterness. You're bitter. You're cold. You're angry. Your heart is calloused. All because you're not willing to extend mercy and forgiveness. You see, Jesus had every power, every right to not get up on that cross, to let us be the one to get on that cross. But Jesus showed mercy. We are to be mercy as, merciful as our God is merciful. When Jesus hung on the cross beside two thieves, the first words out of his mouth, I mean, he probably still had spit running down his face as he was beat, tortured, pierced, a crown of thorns on his head. The first words out of his mouth, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Forgive them. I know they hurt me. They beat me. They pierced me. They're crucifying me. But Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus is merciful. And we are called to extend mercy. Would you bow your heads with me as we now reflect on that which God is speaking to your hearts? Would you allow your mind to go to the place, maybe it's already there, of the time that that person hurt you, wronged you, offended you? Who is it that you need to extend mercy to? Who is it that you need to forgive? Who is it that you need to ask for forgiveness from? Maybe you need to ask somebody to forgive you. Mercy triumphs over judgment. As your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, and you're allowing the Holy Spirit to minister to you, and you're pondering those questions, maybe today you are the one that needs mercy the most. Maybe you've never accepted Jesus's mercy for you. Maybe you are in this moment far from him. Maybe today you need to receive mercy and be reconciled to God. Maybe today your next step is surrendering to the Lord and receiving salvation. I would encourage you to pray as Romans does. Romans shows us that we are all sinners in need of a savior. And every one of us have fallen short of God's glory. And we are in need of a rescue. And God set this rescue mission in plan. The moment that Eve sinned in the garden, the moment that man fell. And this rescue plan is this, is that he would send his son, Jesus Christ, to die, to pay the price for your sins that you might be reconciled to him. And in this moment, maybe for you, that is your next step, to be reconciled to God. Maybe in this moment, your next step is to extend forgiveness to somebody. Maybe for you, you find yourself in this moment harboring unforgiveness bitterness, resentment. And if you're being real, it's killing you. You've lost sleep. Your heart's become cold. It's caused mental sickness, anxiety, depression, fits of anger. It's caused physical sickness. Seems like you're in fight or flight. Seems like your immune system is wrecked. It seems like you can't fight off even the simplest cold. Maybe today it's because you're harboring unforgiveness in your heart. 
Regardless of what your next step is, the response is the same. It's to get before the Lord, to, re- to surrender to him and receive healing, to surrender to him and receive salvation. For those whose next step is salvation, that's the biggest decision you ever make in your life. And we wanna celebrate that with you. And we're gonna all pray together in just a moment, a prayer, just a, a general prayer to celebrate with you as you give your life to Jesus. Our prayer team are already in place and they're on the side walls to pray with those who have needs in this house. If your greatest need is salvation, you need to surrender your life to the Lord. I wanna pray with you. Not gonna embarrass you. We're just gonna include you in this prayer that we're all gonna be praying in just a moment. But if that's you, with bold faith, would you lift up your hands and say, I'm surrendering my life to Jesus. Today is the day of salvation for me. If you need to make that decision, you can go to the prayer team as we respond. Don't believe salvation is found in the raising of your hands. The Bible says salvation is found on your confession of faith. That you believe in your heart that Jesus died and rose again and that he is Lord of all. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And God raised him from the dead so that you can have forgiveness of life. And so Father, as our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed right now, we're just agreeing with those people who are receiving salvation today, healing today. God, you're, you're moving in our midst today. You're setting people free today. And we're now preparing our hearts to respond to that. We don't wanna sit silent. We don't wanna walk out these doors the same. God, we came to have an encounter with you. We came to build an altar and lay our hearts on the altar, lay our life down before you, surrender everything to you that we might encounter your presence and your healing and your restoration and your power. Oh God, meet us in this place. And so Father, we just pray right now as we move into a time of response, as a time of people going to the prayer team, going to the altar, a time where they're just getting before you, seeking your face. God, would you set the captive free? Would you heal every heart? Everyone that's holding on to bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness, God, would you free them today? Show them, God, that it's poison to their body, that they are poisoning themselves and may they let go and take your yoke, take your burden, walk with you, see them through, restore them, bring freedom to them in Jesus' name. And so Father, we we don't rush because you're in the room. And Father, so many of us received a touch from you earlier. And God, I don't wanna miss a moment. And so Father, meet us in this place, pour out your spirit again, that we might find freedom and healing in Jesus' name. Would you stand to your feet all over the house? We're gonna prepare our hearts for worship. And as they worship, I challenge you to respond. If you choose to stay in your seat and worship, I ask that you be respectful of those who are gonna respond differently than you. And then I would extend it a step further. And I would ask that you would turn to the person that's on your left and on your right. And you would ask them, what is it that I can be praying with you about? Do you need to go to the altar? Do you need to pray with somebody else? And let's allow the Lord 
to minister to our needs. Amen.